did I not see this coming? Hi everyone, it's Lindsay, and before we get started, I just wanted to give you a caveat about the audio. We recorded it this morning, so I just turned it around pretty quickly to get it out to you today because I'm really excited about it. There's two parts. This is part one. Julie was in her car and I'm at my home computer and our connection was a little off at times. I don't think it's too distracting, but just in case you're listening to head- in headphones, I just wanted to let you know. And I appreciate Julie giving me the time to interview her. I know she's got a lot going on right now and I have to say I've met many prophets, but none that were women in my tradition. And so this is an an especially interesting and unique opportunity for me. And like all my guests, I take her at face value. I ask her about her theology. I ask her about her beliefs and how she developed them. And that's part one. And in part two, we talk about her relationship with Chad Daybell. And she's very open and honest and forthcoming about that. And I think it's, it's definitely worth listening to. So thank you to Julie Thank you to listeners. If you like what you hear, as always, you can support me at yearofpolygamy.com. And don't forget to check out part two at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. And today is a big day for me because I have been following this guest around for not following around. I have followed you for a long, long time for years. And so it's kind of a big deal for me to to get to talk to you today. I'm so excited to bring on Julie Rowe. Julie, can you say hello? Hi, guys. Hey, Lindsay. Uh, I didn't know that. I you, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. So so uh, just just so you know, Julie, and my listeners uh-huh. already know this, but I started this podcast. I had a lot of angst about polygamy, and of course, people can hear my my evolution over time with it, but. I right. I'm kind of jealous of you in the in the sense that you're a woman uh, in the church. You're doing theology, which I th- I think that's why you first came on my radar because I'm dealing with all these prophets and all these dudes and all this patriarchal mm-hmm. stuff. And all of a sudden, mm-hmm. I hear about this prophetess, and I was like, "What?" I mean, that's what people were calling you, and I was super mm-hmm. intrigued by that as as a Mormon feminist to be like wait, what? There's a woman doing theology like this. So that's how you first came on the radar. But I'll admit when I first started out, I was really hurt by the church's teachings. I was really angry about belief. And so this is why I say I'm jealous because you had this certainty that I couldn't grasp. Like I, I think you and I had, um, and many women have similar experiences in the church. And I, Mm I, I, navigated towards disbelief. So when I first found you, I was skeptical. I was angry. But you have conviction and you have a faith that I think is pretty remarkable, especially going through all that you've gone through in the church. Thank you. That's nice of you. You know, I've I've wrestled with it from the time I was a young girl. I would love to talk about um, a, a point in time when I absolutely made a, a critical decision in my life about what direction I wanted to go based on my upbringing and experiences. And, and I knew that I could never live something I didn't believe a hundred percent as far as the gospel. And so I don't have how much to get into it right now, but basically uh, maybe we can talk about like how well, I was raised. And some yeah. Of that's what I was going to ask whatever, you. you know? Why don't we start with, can you yeah. give us a back, like give us your Mormon background? I mean, I know we only have an hour, okay. so that's a long story, but give us sort of a concise <laughs> okay. version. So I was, uh, I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, Salt Lake hospital, uh, LDS hospital. My mom's from Ogden, Utah. My dad and uh, pioneer ancestry with the LDS church. My dad was pioneer ancestry from Arizona. And when he was seven, they moved to San Diego, California. So he mostly was raised in San Diego. So when I was growing up, um, I lived in Utah till I was two and a half. So when I was two and a half, my parents met at Brigham Young University. And that's very um, Mormon, very much. And my dad was working on his master's degree in counseling they well I think that's what it was he was he was in that he had been um he taught a Sunday school class at church and somebody came up to him and asked if he would be interested in subbing for seminary release time seminary and he was and so he did that as part-time job and then something happened 
to the seminary teacher and they needed a full-time teacher. So they offered him the position and he took that for a short time. I think it was less than a year. I'm not really sure how long. I can't remember. And then while that was going on, the church came to him and asked him if he would be interested in joining the military as an army chaplain. Uh, which is rare. The church doesn't do that, right? The military doesn't come there. It's really hard to become a seminary teacher, very competitive and very hard to become a chaplain in the military. That's uh, anybody that knows that. So he um, decided to do that when I was two and a half. And my mom was the youngest. She has a twin sister, the youngest of several kids, I think seven kids. And he took her out of Utah, right? Which was a big deal. And they, we moved to Texas when I was two and a half. We lived there for about three years. I've moved all over the country. And you can read about that in my biography um, that you can find on my website, julieroprepare.com. But so I moved all over. I also lived in Germany in high school and Hawaii, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. So I've been, uh, been abroad quite a bit. There's about seven states I've not been to. And I've moved, I think I moved 18 times in 18 years growing wow. up and then in college a bunch. I added it up the other day and I've moved 36 times and I'm uh, 47. Wow. So, so I have met a lot of people. <laughs> what, was that difficult or was the church like yes. an anchoring spot? Like it was the one thing the you could count anchoring. on. It was the one thing because everywhere you move, you have a ward and there's similar structure and similar culture. And sometimes you meet the same people in, on military bases that are still in your same ward. It didn't happen a whole lot, but we had some, a couple of families that were close family friends. Our best friend, uh, best friends had nine kids. We ended up with 10 kids and we got to be stationed with them, you know, a couple different times. And so I never lived anywhere growing up my first 18 years, longer than three and a half years. Um, what would usually happen, we'd be stationed about two and a half to three years. And then in between that, we'd have like a six month or a year you know, in between, a, a, but a lot of them were about on average three years. And so um, with my dad as a chaplain, uh, twice a year, he would come back for general conference and they had two weeks of meetings where he would meet with the Quorum of the Twelve and some of the First Presidency and 70s for those straight two weeks. He did that in October and April. And then throughout, you know, then he traveled a lot for work and he was made a, uh, uh, I think it was the clerk to the state presidency he made a high priest when he was 27 years old. So from the time he was 27 and, and they had me, I'm the second of 10 and they had me when, let's see, my mom was 21. She got married, had my sister at just under 23. So she was like 24, 25 when she had me. So when we lived in Washington, that must've been a little earlier than that. Cause it was in Washington state that he was made part of the state presidency when, when he was, you know, 27, 28, something like that. So I, that was it. And then he was always in Bishop Rick's state presidencies, high council. Most of my life growing up, he was on the high council. No matter what ward we went to, they'd automatically put him as a high councilman, uh, you know, because he's a high priest and he was young and he was, you know, forget, forgive me for the expression. He was rising in the ranks. Yeah. Both in the church and in the military. He joined the military as a lieutenant and made made it to captain within six months, which is the shortest amount of time that you can become the next rank. He received all ones on his report card my for the military my entire life. And he was the first Mormon chaplain that was was uh, set for the, the stage of becoming a general. And he was passed over for that at about 27 years in the military. He did, he did 30 years in the military as a chaplain. And he was devastated because he'd worked his whole career to represent the church. And he had played the politics game really good. Yeah. So that is... Down. That's a, the basics of what I grew up with. I, from the time I was little, saw the church politics very close. Now, with the gifts that I have, which I, I did not share with my parents, um, I never felt safe, emotionally safe to um, share any of those gifts. I would try to talk to my sister and my brother every now and then, but I learned very early on. And because I can hear from the other side of the veil and see... Um, my angels basically told me and the Lord just told me, you know, this is better if you keep it to yourself for a while. And also uh, the adversary was constantly whispering in my ear, you know, you're crazy. You can't tell anybody this or they'll just think you're crazy. And and, and I heard that from the time of about three years old. That's my first memory wow. when I had a, a, a visit from 
uh, grandmother, great grandmother from the other side of the veil. Can I can I ask so, you about that? Um, so yeah. you know what it's like to be a woman on the internet, like I do. We have all kinds yeah. of people saying all kinds of things, and there is a large group of people that think that it's completely bogus, it's completely crazy. You mm-hmm. can talk to angels. Can you help us understand, like, help people understand what you are experiencing? What this is like, because I think, especially for my audience is very diverse. We have non-believers, never Mormons, right. two Mormon fundamentalists. And I would say people, there are a large portion of my audience that would understand what you're talking about. But for those who don't, mm-hmm. is it possible to articulate what it's like? Well, I don't think it's fully able to be understood unless you experience it yourself, because that's how it is with everything in life. And, you know, until you walk in someone's shoes, you you can't understand. Although I will say this, those angels try to talk to every single one of us. And so do the demons. It's just a matter of whether or not we're going to tune in and listen and identify that that's what's going on. And often, like for me, I can actually hear a voice. I've heard it both with my ears, like my physical ears and my spirit ears. And it can come in as thought energy as well. So, for instance, people often think it's their own thought energy that's coming in because they have a negative statement in their head. And if you pay attention, now I do energy work um, as my profession now, right? And I part, part of what it is is teach people how to do this and to discern spirits and discern the light or the dark. And there's degrees of those, whether they're um, because you can have a disembodied or unclean spirit which is a spirit that's had a body before on the earth, or you can have a demon, which is somebody that's not had a body, you know, in this, in this, uh, on this earth at this time. Um, or, you know, you can have an angel. And if it's an ancestor, then there are different types of angels. There's, there's types of angels as far as how they progressed in the eternities and um, what their roles and assignments are, whether it's guardian angels or ministering angels, uh, and I won't get into all that, but there's, there's, um, different types of energy and everybody has their energy blueprint. And so the sound of their voice, now they can be mimicked. And so the dark side can mimic the light side, but learning how to discern that gets real tricky. And those, those, um, demons have had a lot of time to practice this up and how to imitate the Lord's voice or father's voice or Joseph Smith's voice or my voice or, or your voice, right? Or an ancestor's voice. But it is very real. So and you can tell after you have practice, you can tell if it's an outside voice or if it's your own voice coming in. For instance, if you have a negative thought pattern, if you have a belief system, um, whether it's a light belief system or a dark belief, su- belief system. So what I call like a false belief or a post-hypnotic suggestion or a broadcast message, which all affects the energy of our system. And um, so that's one of it. So, so there's different hearing gifts that people have, and there's different sight gifts. There's different types of visionary experiences, just like there are different types of hearing gifts that we have. So and people people get talked to their, by their guardian angels all the time, and they just tune them out. They're not paying attention. So. Well, this is what. Okay, so all of this, of course, you come to a later understanding of. But when you're three years old, and you're yeah. yeah so when you're three yeah. years old, though, like you didn't have this understanding. I'm assuming. So is no. it just easier at three to hear a voice, and it's just normalized because you're three and right, right. The veil isn't as as thick. Yeah. yeah, but how did you come to the understanding about? I want to talk about your theology and your doctrine because, like I said, I think it's fascinating to see a woman mm-hmm. developing. Uh, theology. We don't have that a lot in our Mormon tradition because it's very patriarchal. But um, right. Let's go back to your background for just a minute. So you, your dad is like on the church track. Were you a faithful mm-hmm. believer? Were you? Did you have a positive church experience? Like, is it something that you think warmly? Yes, no. From the beginning, because of my gifts, right, my relationship with Father and the Lord that I came to the planet with, um. I have memories actually of being 10 months old and a year and a half old that I've told my parents, I told my, and describing people, places, house decorations, babysitters, all kinds of things that my parents never told me about, but that I remember. And I remember the emotions of me went with it. So, um, my, my veil was basically thin and torn from the, from the very beginning because of what happened to me when I was, in the womb. My mom and dad were on a motorcycle and they got an accident when she was two and a half months pregnant with me. 
And she hemorrhaged and was on bed rest for seven and a half months. And they thought, you know, they were not sure that I was actually going to live that whole time or that I wouldn't have some kind of damage. And I was born on time at four pounds, 13 ounces with everything, you know, normal, quote unquote. The part that wasn't normal is that because of what, ex- what I experienced there, my veil was torn or thin, which can happen in, in, uh, what you call prenatal. And, um, and it was part of my plan. As it's been explained to me, I had a 2004 near death experience and I was told in that experience that I, um, part of my plan for my mission in life was to actually come to the earth like that. And it was the adversary that led to that motorcycle accident, but the Lord knew that would happen and we planned for it. Elohim planned for it so that we could accomplish other goals and missions on the planet and I could be utilized to spread light energy and to uh, expose and rebuild darkness. And so I didn't know that growing up. I just knew what I knew. And, you know, you only know what you know and you don't know that other people aren't like you until you grow up and you start comparing yourself as your, as your mental capabilities and thought processes progress and, and, you know, mature. And then you start going, wow, like, I'm not like these people. And I would ask friends, you know, I had, I was one of 10 kids and I, I tested out with some of my siblings. I'd be like, has this ever happened to you? Or can you hear this? Or, you know what I mean? Like every now and then. And I would do it with friends, even in elementary school. I'm sure that was lonely, though. Was that a lonely? lonely. Yeah, it was horrific. Sorry, we've got a weird delay. Yeah, I could hear the Lord's voice. And the thing is, is like, he would talk to me and I would ask who he was. And he would tell me and he would say, I'm Jesus. And I'd say, who are you? And he'd say, I'm your friend. But I always knew he was my friend. It's like, I just came with a knowing. And that was one of the gifts they gave me. And I could tell the difference between father's voice and Christ's voice. And, and as the adversary would mimic that, even as a young child, you know, at 47, almost 40 years, 48 years later, when you have that kind of constant communication, cause your veil's open and you have the visual gifts of being able to see them sometimes, I can actually, so everybody knows me as a visionary, right? But I can actually hear better than I can see. Because they don't show me everything. There's bits and pieces that don't show me. But I can hear better. And part of that's because with agency, some of those visuals can change based on agency. And then also because Lucifer can also implant false visions. And so I use all my gifts. I have um, all several different types of hearing gifts and several different types of visionary gifts. I don't rely on just one. I use all of them together to get the answers and to get confirmation. And I really use my heart energy with the Holy Ghost to confirm truth. And after, you know, years and years of practicing that, and even just in the last six years going public with my story and having increased opposition, I have had a lot more practice at it. And I'm still practicing because it's never, it's not a perfect science when you're living in a telestial world, right? There's a lot of dark energy on this. So like, so you get, do you get things wrong sometimes? I know for myself, like, of course, it's been so confusing. Like you said, is it the Holy Ghost? Is it my own thoughts? Is it my own desires? Yes. Is it Satan? Yes. And learning how to discern, is it something I want? Is it something somebody else is telling me? Is it the Lord telling me? Is it my guardian angel? And also, because you can have different guardian angels, then you have to learn their voices. So the guardian angels that I have now are not the same ones I had before I went public with my message. And even in the last year, I have some additional guardian angels. They've increased how many guardian angels I have. And they've given me guardian angels that are uh, more advanced light warriors, if you will, to help me progress and to help me understand and to protect me because of the degree of opposition from the dark side, because of, of how physical the attacks are just for me to be able to, you know, speak truth uh, and, and do my mission. And so depending on the mission you have and, and also your ancestry line, and un- there's so many factors that go into it, and I don't even know all the factors They've just explained to me, listen, this is, this is kind of why, and you're going to get an armor upgrade and you're going to, you know, you're, we're going to do some additional shielding and we're going to teach you this. And we're going to teach you that. And, um, and that's all real stuff. If people read in Ephesians and they study the armor of God, like we legitimately have armor and you can ask for armor upgrades. So there's a lot in spirit realm. We, and then we have multidimensional, um, spirit realm going around. So on a telestial world, if you talk to scientists, they, they'll say, 
you know, we have three dimensions and it's only been in the last few years, right? That they've come out and done these studies where they are admitting as scientists that there's five dimensions. And um, the reality is, is we have thousands of dimensions within our space. It's just nobody else, you know, they don't, they don't access that. They don't have access to us or on a conscious level, uh, we're not aware of them. Uh, but once, once you are at a certain place with light knowledge, then those dark realms have access to you as well. Because the degree of opposition you have is a degree of light that you have. And the degree of light you have is a degree of opposition that's allowed to access your system. So, so I'm not dealing just with this third dimension or fifth dimension. I am working in multiple dimensions every day, every night. And um, it gets very intense. It's, it's very intense warfare. What's so interesting is I think that your theology tracks for Mormon doctrine. And, and later on, I don't want to bring this up just yet, but I want to point out that as we're going to talk about Chad Daybell, I want to talk about where I think his stops tracking with Mormon theology. Right. But let's, I'd love to talk about that. And so people realize uh, I don't believe what Chad Abel does. Well, let's let's say yeah, that for the, the last because I want to I want to talk about your near death experience. I remember I so I, I want to talk about you being sort of an LDS celebrity. I mean, you were on the fireside circuit. Uh, we're talking thousands of people uh, yeah, thousands. coming. What was that like as a woman? It had to have been. Exhausting. Unique. <laughs> Exhausting. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, anybody that knows me, I mean, I was a very shy kid. I cried every day for three weeks in kindergarten because I missed being at home and I hated, I hated uh, going to school because I was so shy. I was very shy. By about uh, fourth grade, I, I mean, I was a naturally extrovert at my core, but very shy. And with the house I was raised in, with uh, my dad was six, six and a half, chaplain, big guy. And very patriarchal. I, I love my parents a great deal, but I was raised in one of the most extremely patriarchal homes you could be raised in. Very traditional with my mom being a stay at home mom, never working and my dad being the, the financial provider. My dad and my brothers did all the yard work and cars and the girls did the cooking and the cleaning. So, so forgive example. me for asking it like this, but what made you think that you could take up this sort of mantle? And because for me, I would have never, I think I did consider, but it came out in podcasting, right? Which is yeah. not in the institution. But you chose to go the institutional route. What was that like? What was your relationship like with the institution during that time when you were giving firesides? Um, was it yeah. positive? Well, was it negative? Know, we're perfectly prepared in premortal for whatever our next progression is in mortality. And anybody that knows me, uh, you know, knows that I believe and teach multiple probations. And, and, uh, I have memory of those and stuff. There's reasons why it's part of my mission to help educate people and open their eyes to that. I, I was prepared premortally and in, in childhood as things would progress, as I used my agency to continue to serve the light side, they would continue to teach me more. So I have memories, you know, going clear back to elementary school of little things to prepare, like fourth grade being nominated by my fourth grade class to be the school representative for student council. It was never anything I sought after. It's just that I naturally had a kind heart and was naturally genuinely real and friendly to everyone I met. And because of that, it didn't matter that I was quote unquote popular. Everybody wanted me to be the representative. And, and by the time fifth grade came, then I was elected as vice president by sixth grade. I was a school president. And I gave my first speech in sixth grade to 1,200 people, the entire school and, the, and all the superintendents and everything. I was terrified of that. But when I got done with it, and they gave me live feed for that too, right? And so I look back, Lindsay, and I'm like, they prepared me a long time ago. I hated public, public speaking, okay? And the Lord asked me to do it, even at a young age, and I agreed to it because I knew his voice. And I said, okay, even though this makes me so scared and so terrified, and I hate publicity, like I have said to my kids and, and my, my closest friends growing up, everything, I can't tell you how many times I said, I have no desire to be famous or popular like that. I think it looks like a nightmare. I love my privacy. I don't like people knowing my business. I would hate to have security guards. I would hate to have paparazzi. I would hate people talking trash on me on the internet. Everything about it is completely unappealing. I still hate it, 
but I will do anything for the Lord. And I take a lot of crap from people because of, of going public, but, but I grew into it and I'm still growing into it, you know, and, and going public, like I had my near death experience in 2004 and, and they waited until the end of that two and a half day tour before they said, listen, uh, this is, this is what you agreed to. And they bring out these documents and they show me where I've signed premortally that I'm going to share my story and that it was all part of the plan. And then they start explaining more of it to me. And they said in nine and a half earth years, you have agreed that in nine and a half earth years, you're going to share your story, write a book and speak publicly about what you've experienced, what you've seen here, you know, on the other side of the veil. And I was, when I woke up from that, I had, I had nine and a half years to prepare to go public and, and, uh, (laughs) And it was intense. I don't have, I didn't even have words for it when it actually finally happened and all the divine orchestration, like, and, and, and the overwhelm energy and the fear energy and the anxiety, you know, I used to stay up hours and hours, night after night with anxiety, just at the thought of having to talk about my story and how people were going to treat me because they also showed me in vision and told me some of the awful accusations people would make and some of the things they're going to say about me. And I went forward in faith because I knew my heart had a conviction and I remembered and I, I had that confirmation from the spirit that I could not deny and I will never deny. Do, when you, spirit, do you have any, when the spirit witnesses to you and you know that you're accountable and it goes from not just a, a belief or faith or understanding, but a knowledge. And then later you know that God knows you have a sure knowledge of a doctrine or a sure knowledge of your experience. Well, there's only one direction to go or you're damned. And for me, I, I progressed in that and I knew Lindsay and I still know if I don't move forward in faith and do this, I will be damned. And I know it. And, and I just, I will, I will teach truth at all costs, no matter what people say or do to me. Do you have any idea of how big your reach is? Because that's, I'm always interested, but like I said, you are a woman doing this. And I think it's pretty remarkable in our tradition who, you know, we're sort of used to listening to men, but you don't just, I mean, one of the other things that struck me about you is we have this thing in Mormon feminism where we call it the primary voice. Like when women get power, they, their voices get softer and more, you know what I mean? I call it fake. Yeah. You're, you're not like that. And you're talking as strongly as the men are. Um, So do you have any idea how, how big the reach is, how many people well, on respond to that? What dimension, right? <laughs> we have a really big audience on the other side of the veil, and I don't, I, I have been given an idea of some of the numbers over there, but, but I, I don't have permission to disclose it. I just want to say hi to all of them. They, um, a big reach on the other side of the veil, much bigger than we do here, and, um, but on this side of the veil, it's very small right now compared to how many people are on the planet. But I do see this message going much broader in the next couple of years. And really within the next decade, uh, it, 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 at some point, this message and other teachings that will be restored as prophesied in Isaiah, Revelations, Book of Joel, and some of the other books of scriptures, you know, second and third Nephi, they, they will have not only a dramatic impact on the planet it will transform this world as we go into new jerusalem and as new jerusalem is built and i will play an integral part in that in helping some of that information get out to people so right now it's very small but they continue to give me the vision of what it is and uh you know i had a conversation with somebody yesterday that's that works on my staff and 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 he said you know he goes it's kind of like um does it feel like, you know, for every 10 that hear the message, you might get one? And I said, it's more like for every 10, you might get 0.01, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but I but mean, it's no fair to say what goes on in a celestial world with any kind of truth, right? That's just how it is. And the more truth I speak, Lindsay, the more people reject me and the more crazy they think I sound. And the more haters there are, but that is what happens. And if you study in the scriptures with anybody, any, any prophet or prophetess or anyone who has been a, a public leader that speaks truth or anything, that is what comes with the territory because we live in a telestial sphere where Satan is ruling right now. 
Well, I think it's fair to say that you have at least thousands of people. I mean, when you were doing firesides, they were filling up, right? That At least that's what I was hearing. Yeah. Like, what? Well, yeah, we had to turn people away, you know, 1,200 people packed in the Dixie Center in St. George, and people were sitting on the floors and aisles and, and angry people that showed up. It was free to the public, you know. How did the church and, uh, treat you at the time? Like, did you, were you in contact with your local leaders, like your bishop? No. I had, well, I lived in Arizona for a year and a half. I wrote the first two books there. And then we lived in Iowa for just under two years. And then I've been in Kansas again for almost four years. And and so all the books, the first few books, uh, well, they've all been written in the last six years. I think I've got 11 books or something. So the first two books that came out in Arizona, I wrote my second book and it went to press the day I showed up in Iowa. Um, and that sick president called me in one time because he got news from an area authority. He didn't know me, didn't know anything about me because I was new to the stake and, and area. And he just wanted to make sure I wasn't selling books in any church buildings because I had had a speaking event at, um, Mesa in Mesa at a church owned building that wasn't a, it was called the interstate building. It wasn't a stake center, but it was like a, they do weddings and parties and, and they have all kinds of speakers that come there and you just, because it's church property, you just can't charge for it because the church wanted to keep their tax free exempt status. And that was the conversation. But then he did not like what I was doing with a little bit that he heard. And I said, well, you know, I'm speaking. And he asked if I had more speaking engagements. I said, yes, I've, I've got him for the, the rest of the year. And he said, well, if it was up to me, I would put a stop to it. And I said, well, it's not up to you. And, um, and then we moved. My husband got a job in Iowa and we moved a few months later. And we moved to Iowa and I was there several months and the state president from Arizona went and contacted the area authority that was over Iowa and that area authority got a hold of my state president. Well, if you actually study the handbook, they were completely out of line, right? Completely out of line. And I could tell you so many stories about what that Arizona state president did. He contacted an area authority that had no, I don't want to use the word jurisdiction because that's not how it's supposed to work in the church, but this is, this is what it, what it was. No jurisdiction over that area in Idaho. A guy that lived in Texas who had heard about me through somebody else in his area when I spoke in Texas, they, they didn't like what I was doing. So they went around and they, I mean, they made a point to go after me. And I had three conversations with that state president. And he was actually a pretty decent guy. Uh, he lived 40 minutes north of us because we were just north. We were in Ankeny, Iowa, and he was up in Ames, Iowa. And I was, I went through two interviews without my husband there that were two and a half, three hours long. And he was just trying, trying to inquire. And of course, he quoted Elder Ballard's talk and all kinds of stuff. And, um, and I took the abuse. He didn't put a stop to me, didn't try to. He was still trying to investigate. And um, I knew both in Arizona and Iowa that we would live there less than two years in both places because that's what I'd been shown and told by the Lord. And part of the reason for that is because the Lord's plan was that I would have a little bit more time before they excommunicated me because I knew for a long time that that was part of my plan, that that would happen. And it was part of my preparation. And so, and I've actually never told anybody this, my closest my council and my relief organization knows this, but so, um, so there was no discipline and there, there were, I mean, that was it. What, what um, was their I major? Met, I met with both my bishops in Arizona, two bishops in Arizona. Cause I met with my first one and told them I had a book and I'm the one that gave them free copies of the book. And I gave the free copies of the books to the state presidents and the bishops. And I was the one that went into them other you know, other than those two state presidents, because I wanted them to be aware of what I was doing. I wanted to be transparent. And that's what the spirit told me to do. And I said, you know, here's my books that came out, these two books. What was their major um, issue with, with you? And, and with I wasn't it. doing energy work publicly at that time. Huh? What was their major issue with you though? Was it what you were writing they about? They would never or? tell me. So they, they would never say. Well, it's likely they probably didn't read the books themselves, right? Because I've heard of that happening. Not. They did not. And I can tell you my second bishop in Arizona, I met with him one time. And then a year and a half, a couple years later, my husband and my family, we went back for spring break to Arizona to our ward to visit some friends. And I went, and we went to church. And that second bishop in Arizona, who had read my book, 
when I gave him my book, his response, and he was very in tune, his response was, he read the back of the book. I was sitting there in his office. He turned to the book of Joel and he read the book of Joel, a uh, quote about handmaidens and, you know, the, the one about visions in the last days. And um, I can't remember if it's 228 or what it is right now. It's, it's not coming to mind, but that's what he read to me. And he, and he said, he thanked me for the book and to let him know if he could do anything for me. That same Bishop, a year and a half, two years later, when we went back for spring break, came up to me in the hall. He had been listening to my podcast and he had been reading my, my other books and he thanked me and he was emotional. And he said, basically my memory, I don't know if these are the words, he said, keep the faith. And, um, and so that was my one experience with that Bishop. The other Bishop before him that was just about to get released, I gave him the book and this is in Arizona. He, he looked at it and he said, quite frankly, I don't know what to do with you. <laughs> that was his response. And I know he never read the book. Maybe he has by now, but he didn't then. I and then think he got released like a month later or something. I think that's how so, a lot of people feel. They don't know what to make of you because like I said, you're right. a Mormon woman in a patriarchal tradition having revelations and that makes people right. nervous. And sharing them publicly, which is not okay, right? And I was raised in such a private house, so private, especially related to sacred quote unquote experiences that you never tell anyone about your sacred experiences. And I hadn't growing up. In fact, I never even told any of the guys I did in high school and college. I never even told any of them, but like two guys out of, you know, 30 different guys that I ever even had dreams, let alone visions. And I never even told my husband I had visions. I only told him that I'd had a couple of spirit visits and that I had dreams and that I had, uh, you know, seen him in, in vision, or I called it dream at that time because I didn't, I, I wasn't even comfortable telling my fiance that I had seen him in vision. I just told him I'd had dreams of him for seven years, right? And, and that was it. I never told anybody. So and it was ingrained in me. And, and you don't, you don't do that because this is sacred stuff. And you don't just go around telling people these things, you know? And so for me to be doing what I'm doing right now, I am breaking almost all the church rules, all the cultural rules, and my and the the things that were absolutely ingrained in me growing up, right? Of what, about what good Mormon girls do. And I was going to ask, how did your when all of this happened and you were excommunicated? How did your parents, especially your dad, respond to that? Uh, or is that something that you don't want to talk about? We can, t- yeah. It's it's <laughs> my mom loves me. She has listened to some of my podcasts in the last few years, not all of them, but some every now and then. And um, she's got a good heart and she supports me. Um, and she has read at least a couple of my books, the first few. I'm not sure how many she's read. And my dad, I think he read the first few. I know his wife um, has read them. I, I, I don't hear this so much from him, but she... She sent me a card and said, because of me, they have 10 years of food storage. But when it comes to the energy work, he deals with very extreme health issues. And I've told him I could help him. He just has to ask. And he won't even acknowledge that I do it. And he just ignores the text. He, uh, I, I went from talking to my dad, you know, I initiated, I always initiated, you know, the phone calls. I, I used to talk to my dad every, you know, once a month. And now I'm so busy with work and everything going on. And it's so awkward with, with uh that that i you know he texted me this morning and we text every now and then every couple weeks a month but there's there's no talk about what i do and uh it's like the biggest elephant in the world not so they don't know what to do with you (laughs) either (laughs) right what would you say to to deal with my husband's family because you know i'm i don't know i feel like i'm tainting their last name and they they're in Kansas city so they get random phone calls from strangers asking if julie rose there or they get some harassment and then, you know, people would come up to them in the temple because they're temple workers. They'd come up to me in the Kansas City temple and, you know, they, they've really had to deal with a lot because people don't know my maiden name really. They just know, I mean, they, if you read my biography, you do, but you know, people know, people know my married name. So no, I get that. I mean, I'm public talking about polygamy. My parents are super proud of that. 
And mm-hmm. it's <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I've it's been it's been hard to be public about about these things and to yes. talk about it. So let's talk. I, I want to talk about energy work for a second, if we can, because okay. I actually I think I told you this before we got on, but um. I was super skeptical and, like I said, almost smug about it when I first heard about it. And I was like, oh, this is priestcraft. She mm-hmm. is. Oh, I was you know, accused of that. That's what they asked me for. Yeah. Well, yeah. And let's talk about that in just a second. But so I decided to go get energy work to figure out what was going on. Cause, like, like I said, I don't, mm-hmm. when I feel defensive or strange about something, that's sort of a signal to me to like investigate that and look at that. Right. And so I went and right. saw an energy worker thinking like, it was going to be this anthropological experiment and it was actually a really profound experience. And, and I actually credit mm-hmm. you for that because I would have never connected in that way. And it was, mm-hmm. it, I, I don't even know how to explain it. It was like a two hour almost Mormon priesthood blessing where she said really profound things, mm-hmm. but I can also see why people would be concerned. I can see why right. vulnerable people could be told things or do things and it could turn out dangerous or people could take it. And yes. How, how do you does, reconcile depending that? on who they're working for and, and the gifts that they are using and whether or not they can actually discern truth. And, and there are a lot of good LDS people that have gotten to this and some of them are listening to the dark side and some of them are doing things that are not okay. And some of them can't discern and some of them get answers that cause more damage than others. But you know what? We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And here's the thing. We know there's opposition in all things. It's one of the main things that the gospel is taught in the gospel, right? So if that's the case, and we know that there's witchcraft and warlords and Wiccans and and curses and all this kind of stuff, and we ha- even have it in the scriptures that both God and Satan curse, okay? So tell me, what's the opposite of that? There is always an opposite, and there's always a light version. You can't have witchcraft on the planet and not have a light version. So then people say, well, that's the priesthood. And I said, okay, so what is priesthood? Well, we're taught it's priesthood power the power of God, and then you have priests and keys. So tell me, how come you can have a non-member person who supposedly doesn't have quote-unquote priests and keys who can give blessings and that person gets healed? Where's that power coming from? Oh, well, some people in the church say, well, then, then they must it must be a counterfeit and Satan's just, you know, leading them along to make them think they can heal. I'm like, no, it's not. And this church is not the only one that can heal people. And men aren't either because Joseph Smith, did give priesthood keys and priesthood power to women. And then there was a shift when he died and patriarchal men did not continue that legacy he left and the truth that he taught. And this is where I could get into the whole priesthood power and even priesthood keys and the arrogance of men in the church and men on the planet and keeping women down and patriarchal energy that keeps people from having full truth and full healing and full disclosure and the ability for people to heal at a greater capacity. And you look, and it's all stemming from, from Satan. You know what? We have people that, that aren't being taught or haven't been taught how to cast out devils. And you're either the crazy person or you're the wicked person and to cast out the devil. And in the meantime, we have women, children, and men being possessed on this planet because somebody decides that you can't cast them out. And you tell me who teaches that. It's Satan. But we have a culture in the church that has stifled all this that has smothered it that has killed it and it's happened and if you study the passage of scripture the curses are within the fourth or fifth generation so when wrong actions are taken false belief systems are engaged upon and bad decisions are made and cultural things are there it always comes down and surfaces the energy magnifies to the fourth and fifth generation and that is where we are right now since the death of Joseph Smith. What if someone's getting energy work and they are told something that is incorrect and then they like, do you feel the weight of that responsibility, right? Because Absolutely. people come to you, you have all these classes, right? That you're yes. charging money for. So why is that yes. not priestcraft? What was your, what's your argument to that? First of all, they need to understand what priestcraft is and isn't. We can do an entire podcast on that. I want to get into it. That's also something false. It's been passed down in the church with what priestcraft is. And Satan's done a real number on people. Okay. You tell me what priestcraft is. I can't sell my books because that's priestcraft. But the prophet and apostles can, can, can have book companies owned by the church. Corporations run just like Babylon and sell artists paintings who use their gifts and talents 
And you can have a guy who's in the corner of the 12 who wrote a book who actually had a ghostwriter write it and put his name on as if he is the author. So it will sell and they can make royalties, but they're not practicing priestcraft. If, if my books are priestcraft, so are theirs. Do you think and it's if they because go the around in-, in their, if they go around in their expensive suits, the third world countries creating an image so that they can be popular to sell the gospel and they can publicly speak or they can, they can hire guys like John, by the way, for EFYs and pay him money, but I'm not allowed to speak for free. You tell me the hypocrisy in that. I actually agree with you. <laughs> I think, I think it's infuriating. The church does it all the time. But just, just time out for women alone, right? They charge big ticket money for time out for women. They promote certain speakers, pr- promote certain artists, promote certain companies. And it's because the church is making money off of it. And I guarantee you, I would have had a better chance if somebody actually made money off of Julie Rowe, but I won't. I don't care about the money. And the problem is, is I'm bucking the system and I'm exposing the infiltration and it gets even deeper because you tell, I mean, I could go on about how they're supporting the UN and global agenda. If people actually read Isaiah and compared and they talk about the shepherds in the last day and how they're going to lead the people astray, they would know that I'm not the apostate. But that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is going to apostasy. And I've never said that publicly, but I'm going to tell them to get all kinds of haters on that. And so be it. Because people need to read their scriptures. And we need to read the Book of Mormon. But how about we teach people to read the Bible too? Because it's supposed to be a second witness. It's not supposed to be the only witness. And if people actually read their Bibles, because Mormons rarely do, they would know the stuff that's prophesied in the last days. Yeah. Okay. But but heaven forbid that the actual shepherds in Salt Lake confess that in the book of Isaiah, they're the ones being talked about. They're going to lead, lead astray. Well, let's talk about some of the doctrines that you're, that you are teaching that make people uncomfortable. One of them is multiple mortal probations. And I actually think, you know, I was looking up the history of, Reincarnation. I know it's not reincarnation, but we have reincarnation is the false version of multiple probations. Again, it goes to that opposite thing, right? You always have the false doctrine and the true doctrine. You have witchcraft. You have pure energy work, light work. You have reincarnation. You have multiple probation. And I didn't even, for the record, I didn't even start teaching multiple probations until after I got exed. Okay. So nobody can say I got exed for teaching multiple probations. I started to introduce it. They, I, I guess it started about three months before. Okay. I knew that was going to be the final like nail in my coffin. But what happened was I was told, do not go public with energy work until we tell you. And so in December, November and December of 2018, I went public. I was given direction to the other side of the veil to start doing group energy classes. And that is what was the final straw for church headquarters. Now, church headquarters has three committees overseen by members of the First Presidency and Corner of the Twelve and run by 70s. And they are basically committees set up to, quote unquote, go after and catch those that are causing problems in the church that they want to excommunicate. They have committees that do it. I have proof of it. And they're not about having an, uh, it's, it's the corruption I, I, I can't even begin to tell you <laughs> of what's going on. And to me, it's an, it's, it's being run by the cabal as far as who's taking orders from the top down. Uh, not all of them. There's, there's still, you know, some people in the first presidency that, and, and the corner of the 12 that are working for the light side, but, um, but there's some real big fence sitters. And then we've got some that have actually turned you know, that are working for the dark side. Well, so can we, can we explain um, what the doctrine is for those who, who might not know? Because like I said, reincarnation, Orson F. Whitney was sort of teaching that Hiram Smith once taught, there's a whole train and lineage of gods, right? There's, 
There are, there's Mormon theology that tracks. Yeah. So why don't you, can you explain just the doctrine, like basic 101 to someone who's never even heard the term before so they understand what that means? I'm going to say this about Joseph Smith and, and, and he was quoted more than once saying this. He said specifically to his first pregnancy and the corner of the 12th. Now this wasn't even something he said publicly so much to the people, right? He said it to those in his closest circle on his councils. And he said, if you knew who I was, you would kill me. And if you knew what I knew, and if I taught it to you, you would kill me. And every, and, and you would all leave the church. Okay. That's pretty much what he said. Not word for word, but that's the message. And so if I am here to help teach what Joseph taught, but the people were never ready for, it is to be expected that the first pregnancy in Corma the 12 will turn against me. It is to be expected that the general membership of the church will too. Because if they weren't ready then, and we are now trying to bring about the truth of these doctrines, and Lucifer doesn't want it, when it is time for the church of the firstborn to be on the planet, and for that presidency to be set apart, we are going to get heavy persecution, and the persecution is and has and will already be starting, right? It's not going to just happen overnight. It's a process. And so multiple probations is the true, true doctrine. And when I had my near-death experience, they showed me, they took me through the window of heaven and they took me to my, to different places in the universe and they, in different worlds. And they took me, you know, different planets and different realms and dimensions. And they showed me the history, just not just the last 6,000 years since Adam on this planet, but memories of Atlantis and inner world and all kinds of stuff. And I, when I woke up, they veiled me from it again. So I didn't fully understand. It was like I had a memory and I knew and, and, and it was imprinted, but I didn't fully understand what it was. And then I would have memories and night visions and I, and I would have, I would wake up in the middle of the night and we're talking night after night after night of me waking up with, with these memories from how I died or how my husband died or, and they, and they were good memories, but a lot of them were really tragic memories of things that I had been shown on the history of the planet. And, um, and then I, and then I would be shown stuff coming in the future too. And this was night after night, after night, after night, after night for a decade or, and it still happens. Right. And as they prepared me for that, and I started to understand. And then I, you know, started to quote unquote, wake up to the understanding as they continue to teach me. And as I continued to go public and talk to some of those in my close circle about what I was experiencing, and they received a witness of what it was. Now in 2016, now I've since had six near death experiences because I had another one a month after I woke up in 2004. And then I had four since 2014 and going public with my story because I've had so many intense physical adversarial attacks that I've come death. I've come close to death many, many times and people can believe that or not, but that is my truth. Okay. If they knew my life and they knew the opposition, what I deal with and energy work and priesthood blessings are what keep me on the planet and have helped me heal from Lyme disease, half a dozen uh, autoimmune and the most intense adversarial attacks that you can imagine in a very physical situation. And those near-death experiences, when I woke up from the last near-death experience I had, what I mean by that isn't I was just close to death. It means I was on the other side of the veil again. And I was on the other side of the veil for almost three days in bed in a comatose situation in October 2016. And when I woke up from that, I had a sure knowledge of multiple probations because they had put me on the other side of the veil six times in addition to the night visions. And there is no denying it. And I don't care what anybody thinks because I know it and I can't deny it. And so they can excommunicate me and people can call me crazy and they can call me a pawn of the devil on all kinds of stuff. And in addition to that, I have people that I work with that have had their own spiritual experiences and witnesses and memories and flashbacks and confirmations that have served as witnesses to me. And and we're talking about those in my closest circle and and complete strangers who have emailed me 
And I've got about 12,000 emails that have come in in six years of people telling me about their gifts, how they see and hear angels or demons, how they've had visitations from ancestors, how they've, you know, got memories of being in the womb or pre-mortal or the war in heaven, right? So I'm not just going on my own experiences or my own brain or my own hearing gifts or my own vision gifts. I now have thousands of witnesses, which is what's been required for me to get as strong as I am. Well, and this and is to what... be able to have that sure knowledge, you know, so that I, because I can't deny it. If I did, there is too much at stake with this mission, with what we agreed to do and what Elohim asked me to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. Like, it, I like, mean, I'm not just doing this on my own. And so people can call me crazy. If I'm crazy, then we have millions of other people on the planet that are crazy too. Well, that's what, that's why I said, uh, I think when, you know, the pandemic, when it was in the craziest phase, everything was shutting down, everyone was scared. I, yeah. I was joking that I was like, dude, Julie Rose getting me through the pandemic because yeah. I don't, uh, my Mormon brain doesn't know how to make sense of this, but out there, somebody right. knows, like there is somebody. Right. And because you didn't get that from anywhere else. You didn't get that from the institution. And like no. I said, I'm jealous of your certainty. You, you have well, a conviction. You know, it's funny you said jealous because I got all kinds of people on both sides of the veil jealous. But I can tell you, we'll work on that, Lindsay. I'll give you a free session. We'll release your jealousy because <laughs> what <laughs> comes with that is it comes at a high cost, right? Yeah. I mean, these gifts come at a high cost, and quite frankly, even premortally, most people were not willing to take the cost of the degree of opposition that would come with having the gifts that I have. But all of these gifts that I have are absolutely required for me to be able to accomplish what I came here to do. So let's talk and that about- is why I have the gifts, and also because I'm an older older spirit, and I've had I've had other right? You come to earth with the gifts that you need. And so in other, you know, in other probations, I I was a great singer, or I was a great dancer, or I was a good piano player, or I could play the violin. I can't do any of that in this probation. Yeah, I think it was, uh, but I have memory of it. (laughs) It kills me. I'm like, man, I wish I could sing like I used to. So, so the idea is you, you go through, uh, different earth lives, I guess. I'm trying to figure out how to use parlance. So you go through different earth lives to learn different lessons and to gain different, you would call it like levels of light. Is that accurate? Right. And, and to learn spiritual warfare and, and on your progression to potentially become a god or goddess, because in order to become a god or goddess, you, you have to be a light warrior. All of, all of Elohim have been and are light warriors. And there's degrees of types of angels, you know, and, and they're all archangels and they're the highest archangels. And then there's degrees of Elohim. You have entry level Elohim. So some of the entry level archangels, you have, you have different responsibilities, different talents and, and, and to become perfected, right? Quote unquote. Doesn't, it, it means you apply the atonement and you can become complete and whole. It doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. It means you become complete. If you study the Hebrew word of what that was translated to, it means you become complete. Well, what does complete mean? It means you are not only well-rounded, but you have all of the qualities, all of the gifts that come with being at that stage of development. So, and you can't come to earth one time and become a god or goddess. And, and you, and you don't just go to the celestial world and all of a sudden transform into a beautiful goddess. It doesn't work like that. Okay. So explain that to me. Cause you were saying at the beginning of this podcast that angels have gathered, um, on mm-hmm. the other side of the veil for this podcast. Why? Yeah. What, what would they be getting out of this? What, what could a conversation between you and me provide someone on the other side of the veil? Okay, well, we also have the dark side listening real good because they they have their watchers, note takers, and their reporters, right? We call them, you know, they report their snitches. They they report back. I just call them my Facebook friends, but yeah. Your Facebook friends, yeah. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) You can call them my podcast friends. Facebook friends is a good (laughs) one. So that might be nicer than snitches. I, You know, I say things like that and and they're like, but, uh, and Elohim, 
they take note too. It's all recorded in my book of life. Every podcast I do, every media, anything I do is all recorded. And, and also, uh, there are big screens. There's auditoriums with big screens. Um, they literally, it's like they're watching a movie, they're watching and they're sitting. Some of them are just given audio right now. Some of them are actually watching us on the big screen. They might cut over to you, cut over to me, um, in, in different realms and dimensions. And depending if they're on the light or dark, because there's degrees of light and dark realms, then, uh, they are given what they need and, and what they have access to, depending on who is, uh, running the show. So, and then of course, even then Lucifer, if he, if he wants them to know what's going on so that they can use it in advantage in warfare, then they will twist and turn and they will use it against me or somebody else to try to manipulate the energy or the circumstances. Elohim does it not only as also a war tactic, but also to show progression and to help teach those on the other side of the veil. Anything from, okay, this is, this is the next phase of progression for you or for her, or this is where we are in the plan. This is where we are in in the quote unquote war going on on this side. This is what's going on on this world at this time. We are the final world, final earth, not world, final earth that is a celestial earth in this eternal round in the winding up scenes in the last dispensation following and preparing for the Lord's return. We are in, in into getting into the fullness of times and the dispensation for the gathering. And that gathering is on both sides of the veil. It is not just on this earth. And so we are gathering the family home. We are collecting and rescuing those who have been absconded because the adversary literally does steal. And, and we do rescue missions all the time in spirit realm. And so we are trying to help those that have been deceived, those that have been kidnapped, if you will, um, come home and come back and come to the light. And, and so we invite them to go to the light and, and we hope that, that those that are on the, on the darker dimensions can kind of have the faith to realize, okay, you know what Lucifer told you a long time ago that Christ could never atone for you because, you know, if he doesn't finish his mission, well, then you're damned, right? That was a big one. He said, well, the other one was uh, they didn't, they weren't all given privilege of knowing what the pawn was, but Lucifer was in some of the highest councils of Elohim when he fell. And he was part of those, those plans. And he knows a lot of the plan and we know that. And so we allow, we allow them to listen in, in hopes of returning people, but also because um, part of the progression is that you have the opposition. So on the light side, those that are in paradise, for instance, they're still progressing, even within a celestial or terrestrial world, there are so many degrees of light and there are veils, there are gateways, access points, you have to go through portals and there's doorways to be able to be given and granted entry into those degrees of light. And, and even in spirit realm, they are veiled from progressing until they are ready to progress based on the knowledge they have. And knowledge really is power. Can you share what your level of light is? Like, is that something that is that a spiritual thing or do you know, do people know what level they're at? Um, very few. Well, on earth, very few do. And they're veiled, you know, for a reason to help progress. I, I do know, but I, I don't, no one on the planet is to know what that is. I, I won't discuss it with anybody, even my, you know, closest friends. Yes. So, you know, your level, someone asked me, they said, is she a translated being? And from my understanding of Mormon doctrine, it wouldn't happen until after the, like the resurrection or there are very few, but well, how does that fit? No, not before. It can happen before resurrection. Actually, resurrection happens after translation. Translation is an ordinance. I am not translated yet, but I do know that I will be one day and I don't know when. How, um, how do you do ordinances, though? Like, okay, so... Presently, beings can have children, and they can do ordinances. They still have a body. Uh, they just start to look younger as they go through that process. And so, like, I can say I'm in, I'm in process right now, but it's not completed. And it is going to be completed when I have a priesthood blessing. I'm not going to tell you who comes to do that because it's very sacred, but... It's not something that just happens through energy work, although clearing dark energy when you do energy work does help and it helps kind of remove those excess energies, sickness and stuff like that. 
Um, but that is not what actually creates the translation. Uh, and, and if you are fully translated, you can travel with that physical body through portals. Now, the dark side has shapeshifters, and they will use their dark priestess to do the same thing. That's what happened with Cain. That's part of what he got when he when he murdered Abel and, and did the other things that he did. The light side has theirs, too, when we have John the Revelator. We have so, the city of Enoch. We have Enoch. But is the ability to evaluate light and darkness a spiritual gift available through yes. just per- personal righteousness? Or do you need like the priesthood mantle? And, and when I say priesthood mantle... You again, don't need the priesthood mantle, but you do... You The the clearer your energy is, the clearer you get and your, your filters come off, your eyes are open, and you can see more clearly and discern what's going on with other people. And that's part of what's going on with, with, with Chad is his veil was getting thinner, but he was being talked to by the dark side. And he, uh, and his, his filters were dirty and he, he claims he had access to Akashic records or the book of life to be able to, to make these lists and, and decide somebody was light or dark and all that kind of stuff. But he was being lied to. And what he didn't know because he was not given this information is that Lucifer has false Akashic records. In fact, I don't know if there's anybody else on the planet that talks about that, but there are false books of life. And in order to have access to the book of life, you have to have ascended to a certain degree of light before you come to this earth at some point to have access to that and then be given that access. And there are certain parameters that are given there. And, uh, and, and Chad Dable does not and did not have access to the true records. He got false records and he was using, um, dark methods to get answers. And so Lucifer will tell a lot of truth. And then get you off path and start telling you all kinds of weird stuff. And that's what happened to Chad and Lori. Well, so I want to talk about Chad and Lori. Can, do you have time to get into that if we like turn yeah. it into a part two? Okay. Yeah. And I'll say what, what opened up Chad. This is what I saw a long time ago and what I've been confirmed. The Lord's told me over and over. What opened Chad and Lori up? And we'll talk about Chad most because I know him better than Lori. I, I really don't know Lori other than what my gifts have given me and the Lord's told me. Is what opened Chad up is pride, ego, arrogance, and lust. <laughs> As the okay. same things that got loose. Wait, 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 wait. Pause it. So let's have a break and and uh, we're going to do this file and then let's do part two. And I'm going to ask you the Chad stuff. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.